Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Schnapp, a.k.a. the Serene Home Nursing Agency podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Condon. Schnapp is here to explore the inner workings of the American healthcare system. We want to educate and inspire our listeners by diving into the minds of healthcare professionals and people with extraordinary stories. A stressed brain is going to end up playing a lot of tricks on us, you know, because it's wired for survival. So it's trying to warn us of things that might be similar in the environment. So it's always on hyper alert. Today's guest is Amy Fass, a clinical mental health therapist who specializes in patients with PTSD. Her and I will discuss PTSD in depth and the different methods that she uses to treat it, including EMDR and psychedelic experiences. Hope you guys enjoy. Good morning, Amy. How are you doing today? Good morning. I'm so excited to be here. I'm doing great. No, I'm really excited to have you. Thank you for uh, agreeing to this. This is going to be a really good interview. I'm excited. Um, Can you start by introducing yourself to the listeners? So my name is Amy, Amy Fass. um, I'm a mental health therapist out of Utah, and I specialize in the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder and other anxiety-related disorders in adults. That's awesome. So um, what made you want to become a therapist exactly? So I feel like being a therapist kind of found me. Um, I was in the military at the time and I was pursuing a degree. And like a lot of people, I ended up in the in like psychology classes um, just for the, your generals for your bachelor's degree. And I was fascinated, right? It just explains all the workings of of your mind. And then you're like, oh, this is what's going on with a lot of my family and things like that. Mm-hmm. So um, getting into more of those. And then I ended up with a bachelor's degree in social psychology, which is, um, which is a bachelor's degree that just includes a lot of sociology classes and mixed in with the psychology classes. And then from there, you know, um, options are pretty limited as to what you can do with a bachelor's in psychology. So I knew I needed to keep going. And um, one thing you could do is human resources, but I got rejected from a human resources program. But I think doors closed for a reason. And I think this was just supposed to find me. And so I ended up um, starting a a master's degree program in clinical, uh, clinical mental health counseling. And it was a pretty specialized degree program, a little bit different from social work, so less community-focused based um, uh, training, and more clinical mental health training, more really specific to treatment and um, assessment and diagnoses and things like that. So ended up um, graduating with a degree in clinical mental health counseling um, in, I think, 2010. So about 11 years ago, but yeah, I think this was just, you know, doors open and closed for a reason. And I think this, this found me and I'm, I'm really happy about it. It's a good fit. So you said that you specialize in people with PTSD, correct? Mm -hmm. So two questions. I, I personally know what it is, but can you explain uh, to the listeners what PTSD is and can you kind of explain why you chose on taking that route? Because there's so many different routes that you could take um, with mental health therapy and you chose PTSD. So can you uh, touch on that a little bit? Yeah, you bet. I love talking about this subject because um, PTSD, I I think it's just kind of gotten um, pigeonholed a little bit. It's, it's a, it's a diagnosis that we think of when we think of like things like war or um, physical assaults or sexual assaults and things like that. And, and we don't really broaden that uh, framework. Um, but I like to, I like to be the ambassador for like little T traumas. We call them like, there's big T traumas, like the ones I just mentioned. And then there's little T traumas, the, the ones that, the ones that happen kind of more chronically in childhood, like, um, but I'll get to that. Anyway, PTSD. PTSD as a diagnosis is when you have been uh, directly exposed to, or you've witnessed, or you've experienced, um, you know, a situation where you, where you, there was a threat of death or serious injury or sexual violence. And you have, you know, you can be the one exposed to it, but also you can get PTSD from 
repeatedly hearing about these things. So like first responders, um, therapists, um, you know, medical personnel, police officers, uh, you know, these are people you can, that is under a qualification. Uh, you don't even have to be directly experiencing it. You can just hear about it on a regular basis and it stays with you. And then when you experience these types of traumas or hear about them repeatedly, um, they can cause, you know, obsessive, you know, thoughts, intrusive thoughts. You can think about it kind of constantly or have dreams or nightmares about it. You can have, um, you know, flashbacks are a part of that. Um, sometimes we're getting a reminder of it and having a physiological reaction like a panic attack or, um, or just, you know, extreme anxiety at, or, or a freeze response at, at a reminder of it. Um, also, we would want to have a situation where, you know, people are kind of, whether you intend to or not, you're avoiding um, like a trigger. You're, if you're avoiding the triggers or if you're avoiding reminders of the events that happen, um, then that's another qualification for PTSD. Um, sometimes amnesia, like dissociative amnesia, if you can't remember exactly what happened or important aspects of it are kind of not available to you. Uh, that's another uh, qualification for PTSD. It doesn't have to be there, but that's one of the things that we look for. Um, negative beliefs about yourself. I don't know if everybody really understands this, too. It's just even negative beliefs about yourself or the world, like um, no one can be trusted or um, the world is a dangerous place or, um, you know, no people aren't safe. These kinds of belief systems are part of the qualifications for PTSD. And those are things like so many of us have, you know, but that's any, any of those negative beliefs that are persistent about, you know, yourself. Um, persistent anger or persistent guilt or persistent shame, persistent fear, like high anxiety, um, people getting detached. Um, checking out, kind of withdrawing, wanting to be away from people, um, feeling like you can't connect to others is a really is a other it's another good marker for understanding if somebody has PTSD or not. Um, so those are those are the kinds of um, like if you get scared really easily, easily, uh, like having an exaggerated startle response, like you're always kind of like on edge. Um, people who have sleep issues, we look for sleep issues a lot. Um, or if you're kind of impulsive and self-destructive, that can also be a, a marker, you know, of PTSD. So there's a lot of things that go with it, which don't all have to be present at once, but the criteria kind of um, helps us identify that. But I'd like to kind of cast a wider net. Yeah. So you just touched on many different things that come along with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. And one of the questions I had for you was... Um, are hallucinations typical in like severe cases of PTSD? And the reason I ask this is because I am not, I, I know what it is. I actually know people who have PTSD and uh, I saw a movie once and I don't know how true or how accurate this is to actual PTSD, but the movie, I can't even recall what the name is, but um, the actor was Shia LaBeouf and he was, he was in the military and when he came home, he was experiencing severe PTSD and he was having hallucinations like he was back in like the uh, basically like in the action of the war. Is that something that's typical of like severe PTSD cases? Yeah, you know, the word hallucinations, I think gets a bad rap too, because if we're seeing things that aren't that other people are not seeing, um, I think people get scared of things like schizophrenia, you know, I think they get really worried about, you know, oh, maybe I'm some you know persistently mentally ill here but flashbacks are really common with uh, mm -hmm. ptsd you know especially in severe cases and during a flashback you might just really lose connection with your present surroundings and you know kind of back there and then instead of here and now and you might even smell things um see things hear things that other people are not hearing and it can be really terrifying for people and, and it's hard to understand but when we know and understand that a stressed brain um, can have a lot of um, 
unusual things happening. It doesn't have to be so alarming and people don't have to fear, um, you know, maybe that they're, they're crazy. I hear that a lot, like, oh, I think I might be crazy. But, um, you know, a stressed nervous system is, uh, a stressed brain is going to end up playing a lot of tricks on us, you know, because it's wired for survival. So it's trying to warn us of things that might be similar in the environment mm -hmm. to, you know, if, if my, if somebody who assaulted me has a, um, a white truck, then I'm seeing white trucks everywhere because my, you know, my, uh, trying to like warn you essentially. Exactly. Your brain is looking for those and scanning for that. So it's always on hyper alert. So flashbacks, um, can be a really common, um, a really common, uh, thing in severe PTSD as well as dissociation, kind of like freeze mode and checking out. So both of those things are pretty, pretty common. So going off that question, um, I did mention that uh, the movie that I saw was a um, movie based off of basically a soldier, uh, someone that was in the, mil the military. So I feel like PTSD is very commonly associated with like the military and people who were in like the wars and like action, like actually in person. So would you say that a majority of your patients are uh like military active or have been military active, or do you just see a, a mixture of different people within the uh, community? I get asked this question a lot. And I think it does go back to like us thinking, like putting it in that category. Well, if you're a PTSD specialist, you must see a lot of, um, you know, military, military folks. And then plus, because I um, am located right next to an air force base, you know, so you would think, mm -hmm. I think one of the tough parts is, um, our military and as well as first responders, there's still a stigma around um, getting mental health treatment. You know, mm -hmm. like um, yeah, you might be worried that you won't be qualified for your job if you seek mental health treatment. Even though I think the military is is trying to spread a more positive, um, trying to put a more positive spin on that and make it more acceptable. But I do think that a lot of people don't get. They don't get the support that they need because it's hard to reach out. It really is. I've talked to a lot of first responders. I would think I would see way more first responders. Like, can you mm -hmm. imagine just, you know, dealing with what they deal with and seeing what they see every day? Yeah, it's funny you say that because um, I've had two different guests on the show. Uh, well, I've had several guests, but one guest that I had, his name was Ted, and he was a licensed clinical social worker. And him and I spoke about how people basically have like a stigma around it like like you said earlier that like you might just feel like you're crazy so like you don't want to go out and get help because then people are like oh you talk to a therapist and like basically like in everyday life people think that's just like something that's so strange but like like you said a lot of different people go through different things so i think that it's important and me and ted spoke about this that people talk about their problems and like figure it out and it's better to figure it out with some people like to do it with loved ones and people that they're close with but i i think that it's better to go to a professional like yourself or like ted and then the last guest I had on the show actually was a first responder. And her and I spoke about one of the questions I had for her was if they have um, something because she's a paramedic, if, if there's something that some type of outlet that um, like Long Island paramedics get to basically um, like deal with it, with the mental stress of being on the job. And she said that they are offered something, but in her 25 years of experience, she had only gone to the therapist like two times and like that is not very common to see the therapist. So there is like this negative stigma around it that if you go to a therapist, like there's something wrong with you, but people don't realize that everyone has like their own issues and it's better to speak to a professional about it to get, to get it fixed essentially. It's true. And I was actually talking to a nurse yesterday about this very thing. And she was talking about how as a nurse and, you know, working in like an ER, some of the things that they see 
just stick with you, you know, like you don't think of them causing PTSD, you know, you don't think of those things causing PTSD because, well, nothing's happening to me. But if I'm seeing, you know, very, I'm seeing just horrific things on a fairly regular basis, those pictures just stick in your mind and your mm-hmm. brain, um, you know, makes a little file folder of them all and they show up, you know, when we smell something that's similar or when we um, hear something that's similar. And then we have to like get flashes of these images back in our brain and that can be really traumatizing because the brain is set up in such a way where the body responds to what it's seeing, right, all the time. So the body can't, you know, the body has to respond to what the brain is giving it. And in those moments, it feels, you know, very distressing to our nervous system to relive those images. And the good thing I think that... Um, that we can pass on to your listeners is just normalizing um, being able to process those things and and let them go because we don't have to those images don't have to they don't have to haunt us on a regular basis and there's a lot of different treatment modalities to help get rid of those pictures but um, getting rid of those pictures is just making it easier on our nervous system to function in a day-to-day space. So um, definitely not about weakness or anything, you know, when it comes to um, talking to somebody, it's kind of like we need first responders in a big way to, to help maintain order and help keep people okay. And just like that, you know, we're on the other end of things to just help the, all those people who go through difficulties, release and move through those things so that we can be like ready for each other i mean we all got to take care of each other yeah after asking that question now i'm thinking that there's probably a much larger percentage of people in the military that have that like for lack of like better word like that like tough guy mentality like i'm i'm in the military or i'm a navy seal like i'm supposed to be a certain way so they probably don't go and seek help for their problems and that's probably the issue that you see more often than actually having people come in from the military for their PTSD. And I would assume that like being in war and I've never been in war, that's like, that's very high stress environment. Uh, You see some traumatic things happen. And like, I think that's like one of the major things. And I think this is why PTSD is so largely associated with the military is that because they probably get like very severe cases of it. And now I'm thinking that these people probably aren't seeking help because, like I said, they have that like tough guy mentality that they need to basically look and act a certain way, but they're not realizing that everyone goes through different things, and it's just it's better true. to talk about it. It's true. It's better to talk about it, and, and I, I guess I can speak a little bit from the space of being in the military. I was in the Air Force mm-hmm. for about four and a half years. Thank you for your service. I by was the in. Way. Thanks. I was in. Uh, I was working in the space of air traffic control, and. Um, I know firsthand, you know, that's when some of my fellow air traffic controllers would mention, you know, that they needed to go to um, talk to the mental health, you know, department. Everybody kind of just like that was like the, you know, the thing that you didn't do or the thing that you didn't talk about, because maybe, you know, you'd be seen as unstable, like for your job. Like, what are you possibly going? What could be so bad that you're going to mental health for? Um, And then. All of a sudden, it was like, well, am I going to get kind of taken off the job for a while and evaluated? I mean, there's just so much, um, there's so much fear and stigma, and, and still, and I was, I was in the military quite a few years ago, but um, there's so, there's still so much stigma surrounding that, and I, I know they're really trying, but the culture of people has to change also along with the messages, you know, that they're giving people. So I'm glad we're able to talk about it. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, this actually helps some people who are in uh, the military or army, whatever. Yeah. Know that it's okay to come speak to a, a professional because it will only help. Um, next question I have going off of that is, do you think that because you were in the military that that's why you kind of leaned more towards the PTSD uh, aspect of therapy? Well, um it is certainly something that I had an intention of um, of working with people with, you know, trauma who are in the military. And I've gotten an opportunity to do a lot of that, um, which is nice. But the majority of the people that I see, even because I, you know, even in living next to an Air Force base, 
uh, are mostly civilians. Like I don't, I w I'm always surprised at the, the, you know, the lack of first responders that I see, the lack of military that I see. Um, but I see, interestingly enough, mostly people with developmental trauma, and that kind of goes back to the little T versus the big T trauma. And what the, do you mean by developmental trauma? Developmental trauma is, um, it's more of the things that happened kind of chronically throughout our childhood. Little T traumas might be just difficult experiences when we were tiny or overwhelming things that happened to us when we were kids or the ways we interpret circumstances um, as if we caused them. And so, and these could be totally benign things. Like for example, if like my dad's not around very much when I'm a kid cause he worked a lot or. So like when you think it's your fault that like yes. if something happened like in your parents' exactly. marriage or something like yes. that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and because, um, because we're children and we rely on our caregivers for survival and as kids, we're the center of our own universe. We have a tendency to blame ourselves uh, for dad being gone or not emotionally available to us, you know, because we think that we're not good enough or we've done something wrong or we're bad. And if we were just good, then, you know, we could get, we could get the caregiver to love us unconditionally. Mm -hmm. um, that's little T. That's a little T trauma. A little so T what trauma would be, what's is, a, an example of big T trauma. Then. So I think big T traumas are really more the things that we would traditionally think of as um, like those, you know, the pit, the holes that we kind of fit those into easily, like, um, you know, like uh, being involved in war or rape trauma, any kind of sexual trauma, um, even as a kid. Um, and the, you know, physical assault, those kinds of things. I'm probably missing a ton of them, but like big T traumas are the things that we all would kind of like nod our head. Oh, that's terrible. You know what I mean? But those little T traumas can, when they, when they add up throughout childhood can be just as dastardly and then end up, people end up meeting the criteria for PTSD completely without maybe having had one of those big T experiences in their lifetime. Cause with little T traumas, it's a lot, there's a lot of it that has to do with what our parents didn't do. Um, as, as opposed to, you know, what was done to us or what they did, you know, did do. And I think, um, understanding that kind of puts the light on for a lot of people. Um, because if we look on the criteria for, for PTSD and we think about feeling rejected from our caregivers, right. That has to do with survival. That is, a that's, you know, we're hurt, social herd animals as humans. And anytime we feel as children alone and overwhelmed, even if we're in the same room as our caregiver, but if we feel alone and we feel overwhelmed, that's a trauma for a social herd animal like a human. And so if we include that understanding as, as, a, as trauma and understand that that can contribute to somebody having PTSD from, you know, what we call developmental traumas, um, then it fits into the larger conversation and kind of um, helps scoop that that population in. And that's those are the people that I work with most often. So yeah, that's what I was going to ask. So you you find yourself working more with people with little T as opposed to big T traumas, yeah, correct? Yeah, because people come in and they are having trouble with their relationship or they're mm -hmm. having trouble, you know, getting along with people at work or both, you know. So if it's impairing your life in some way, um, then that's, you know, part of the diagnosis if it's impairing your functioning in some way. And then we can track these experiences back to childhood. I mean, a lot of the, um, a lot of the, you know, the cycles that we act out as adults, the, the dysfunctional cycles that we act out as adults uh, with our primary partners or our friends or, you know, people at work are a result of those little T traumas. You know, if we're always... Um, you know, not trustworthy of people or, you know, people aren't trustworthy to us. We think that somebody's going to, you know, screw us over. Or if we think that, um, you know, our partner's going to leave, if we're always worried our partner's going to leave, we tend to act a certain way, but we can track that all the way back to childhood. And um, I do that using a, like what I use particularly is a, 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 a treatment called EMDR and it helps us find those early experiences what so, is EMDR exactly? 
So EMDR is an evidence-based uh, treatment, which means that they've researched the heck out of it and um, reference, they've researched it for PTSD. And it's, um, you know, it just means that it's uh, effective. They found it to be effective for treating people with PTSD. Um, it stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, EMDR, which is sounds pretty complicated, but it's really, we draw on the brain's natural ability to put information into long-term storage like we do if we're getting REM sleep at night. So REMs, when, we, when we're in REM sleep, it's usually the time of the night when our brain is taking information from like short-term memory from the day and sticking it in long-term storage. So, um, but a lot of times when things have been traumatic or stressful, we're not getting that kind of sleep. So our brain isn't able to process these things um, adequately. And when we're kids, you know, we're putting meaning on things that isn't accurate and then we're storing those memories inaccurately. Like, you know, dad lost his job, so he came home and he's like, you know, kicked the dog and yelled at everybody. But we were like, man, must be my fault, right? So we put those memories in long-term storage and then that becomes a part of our developed, you know, little nervous system. And so um, EMDR, we're able to kind of look at uh, everybody's issues through a trauma lens and be able to find those memories that helped contribute to our like negative belief system. And we can crack those open, uh, those memories and find out, you know, what, what was maladaptively stored here in this memory. And then we use eye movements or um, different kinds of bilateral stimulation. So eye movements would be like moving your eyes back and forth, left and right, kind of like you would do in REM sleep, but likely a lot slower and um, and then that takes advantage of the brain's natural way of um, of being able to restore health to that memory and take some of the, the stress out of it because a lot of times when we think of those memories we have a little like a little chest pain or like a little sick to our stomach kind of feeling or we feel it in our throat and this can also help us move those um, memories out of our body and be able to kind of let that go uh, in a somatic way in the body. And so it heals the, it heals the whole person. And um, one of the cool things is you don't have to talk about it in detail. When people come in, you know, they're like, well, I don't want to go over these memories in like glaring detail. And that's one of the great things about EMDR is it doesn't require the, the client to come in and, you know, relive these things. You can, you don't need a lot of information uh, about the memory itself in order to reprocess it in a healthy way. And a, and a trained therapist should be able to um, help you work through it in a way that isn't, doesn't feel like reliving it or isn't too distressing. So like, is this, is this a tactic where the person is, because you were mentioning REM sleep, are you awake during this process or like what, how does that go down exactly for the patient? Yeah. Well, that's a really good question because I think some people come in and they're like maybe worried that they won't be able to be in control of their experience, you know, because if we're traumatized, we're worried about what we have control over, sure. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, you're completely awake during the whole thing. Um, it isn't really like uh, hypnotism at all, although some people can kind of get into a rhythm and, you know, we're kind of daydreaming a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, but no, you're awake during the whole process. And I tell people that if they, you know, we kind of have a code, if you need to pause for a second, we, we have a way to do that. And um, yeah, it's, um, it's a method where you're completely in control of your experience. So what's fascinating about that is like our, you know, brains, because they're wired for survival, they're keeping all of these networks of information. And if I can find maybe um, if somebody comes in and they're like, I'm just an anxious mess and I don't know why. Um, a lot of times we can use the thoughts that they're having, the emotion that they're experiencing and where they feel it in their body. And if we can concentrate on those things and then let the mind float back to another time when they have experienced that feeling before in their body or that emotion or that combination of feelings, it'll often lead us back to the culprit. You know, we can find those memories um, through the associations that the brain is making. It's almost like the body is telling us, I need to work on this material. Like I need to deal with this, you know? So 
yeah, we ha um, just ways of kind of trying to find those problematic spots in childhood or adulthood or whenever they might have kind of sealed in those panic symptoms. So is EMDR um, a tactic that you use for both big T and little t patients or is it something that you find yourself more often doing with like little t patients or vice versa? Well, for me, it's both. When we float back on, um, on these memories, one of the goals is to, to tackle the earliest ones first uh, and the most distressing. So of the two memories that we usually prioritize to tackle using EMDR, uh, using the eye movements, <clears throat> I always tell people I want the first one and the worst one. The very earliest one you can that can you oh, you can recall that is associated with this material that you want to work on, and and the most distressing one, the one that causes you the most distress in your body, or the one that you know really haunts you the most. So if we can do those, um, often everything in that network kind of like calms down quite a bit. So we don't have to do, you know, if you have, gosh, some of us, you know, when we were kids, we have 37 experiences where our, um, you know, our, our dad didn't pick us up from school and we were the last ones there. And, you know, the teachers had gone home and like, this is, you know, these are just examples of benign things that you wouldn't think of as traumas, but we don't have to go through every single one of those. We just find, you know, whatever the experience was that maybe they can recall that might have been first. And it doesn't, you don't have to remember those uh, memories perfectly accurately either. Mm -hmm. uh, it can be fragments or just even a picture in your head that's what you've got. And so we don't have to worry about whether, because memories don't get stored like movies, you know. Yeah, so they just kind of end up taking on inaccuracies, and, and that's okay. We don't need them to be perfectly accurate to deal with them. So um, this was something I wanted to ask a little earlier, and uh, it's kind of popping back into my head. Do you think, or correct me if I'm mistaken, I feel like with little T patients and big T patients that the symptoms might be a little different, right? Or do they experience the same symptoms or like because – I don't know, I'm just thinking like a big T patient, like let's say like we were using the example of military person, someone is getting flashbacks of being at war. Um, are the symptoms different for little T and big T patients or do little T patients also uh, typically have like those same things, like maybe flashbacks or hearing and smelling things that might not actually be there? That's a really good question, actually. So I do find more with, um, I think... Well, here's a good example, I guess. If you see somebody who is in the military and they have some big T traumas from being in the military, there might also be some big T or little T traumas that are associated with it that made it, um, that made them more predisposed to getting, you know, kind of setting them up for getting PTSD in the future. So if our nervous system is already kind of raw and overwhelmed and we get put into a situation where we're, you know, overwhelmed and feeling alone, then that's going to get stored differently than, um, you know, a nervous system that has felt safe and, you know, it really just depends on the situation and the person and there's really no way to tell. But people who have experienced early trauma um, are at a higher risk for getting PTSD as adults. And so often when you work with somebody who has a big T trauma, you'll find also that there are little T traumas to be dealt with. Um, or big T's in their in their history, but it all stems from childhood for sure. Yeah. So um, there's so many different things that go into PTSD and the treatments and the different symptoms like we've been discussing. Um, you said that the EMDR is like one of your um, primary, basically, um, things that you use in order to treat it, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. EMDR is the modality that I've found that... Um, well, when you come out of like school for being a counselor or a therapist, um, they don't they don't really train you to specialize in trauma. And what's tough about that is most of the people that you see need 
trauma treatment in one way or another. And so find like getting more therapists to jump on this um, trauma-informed treatment bandwagon, I think we're just going to end up seeing better results overall. But years and years ago, I had a colleague, um, I was getting kind of burnout on working with, um, with adults. And I had a colleague who told me that uh, EMDR was the best tool that they'd found thus far in their career to help people with trauma. So I was like, yeah, well, we need a tool. So I, you know, jumped in and, but I'm a really skeptical, like human. Mm-hmm. So I went to this training, which is rather expensive to start with. And how um, long ago was this, by the way? Well, the training is, um, the training, it kind of depends on, on how, how many people you have to, to practice with and how quickly you can get the supervision hours in. I mean, you can be fully trained, which just means like two long weekends of training, but then you have a certain number of hours that you have to get into, you know, to practice with people. Mm-hmm. And then you have to get a certain number of hours of supervision, you know. So, so how long can, have you personally been using MDR? Um, gosh, I think it's been, I think I've been doing about six or seven years now. Um, and you, you're obviously find that one of the most effective ways to help treat trauma patients. The one of the most effective ways that's within my power to do so, yeah, because, um, you know, I, I trained in it, and then there's a there's a higher level of training that you can get a certification, and then I drank all the Kool Aid and became a consultant for EMDR. So mm-hmm. I really just jumped in with both feet. It's a really useful tool, but again, you know, this tool is still uh, limited you know, with people who have very protected nervous systems and don't want to let go of these um, belief systems, you know, that that really feels like they're keeping themselves safe. So there are parts of us that are just like, I am not about to give up these belief systems because it is, you know, in a well-intentioned way, uh, helping me feel safe to be hypervigilant all the time, to be Mm -hmm. on the alert, you know, to have these experiences. If our brain thinks that it's associated with safety, then there are parts of us that are kind of hold back from yeah. uh, having us let go. There's probably another portion of those people that also just don't want to speak about them either. Absolutely. Like speak yeah, about the things absolutely. that upset them in the past. Um, and that kind of goes into my next question. Uh, I was going to ask, what is the most difficult aspect of treating PTSD? Would you say that that's one of them or do you think there's something else besides uh, people basically not wanting to actually talk about their trauma? Yeah. Well, for me, in treating PTSD, I think it really is like being able to um, help people learn to to see trauma from like a higher perspective. Um, When you're experiencing and re-experiencing, you're kind of stuck in the past and the part of you that experienced that is still um, is still kind of stuck there in that trauma time. And so what we try to do is help people get a little bit of perspective to see it from a different angle. Um, One of my favorite quotes is the the Einstein quote where he says, we cannot solve our problems with the same thinking we used when we created them. So we really have to be able to shift focus and be able to kind of imagine the situation as if we're compassionately looking at that part of ourselves that went through the trauma to help them um, and that's another part of um, treatment. And, and that stems from, well, a lot of indigenous cultures have been using that kind of framework for treating trauma for a long time. But in Western culture, we call it like internal family systems. So basically we treat ourselves as like um, multiple Uh, parts you know that we all have parts of us like I have a part of us I use when we're just hanging out and then I have a part of us I use the part of me I use when I'm at work you know and so we have all these multiple parts and then these parts of us that went through trauma also still exist you know and that works within our nervous system to kind of keep us stuck so when it comes to just I think what comes to mind when you talk about like what is the most difficult aspect of treating PTSD is helping the mind understand that it's safe to let go of these old belief systems but when they've been just woven into the fabric of our existence through childhood it's it's difficult to imagine what life looks like if I am good enough or if I you know I'm lovable what would that look like so Mm -hmm. it's that it's helping people find that middle map you know 
Yeah, and like essentially like touching into those different parts of our, basically like our personality, like you just said. 100%, yep, exactly. There's a lot of ways to do that though, not just EMDR. Um, yeah. Yeah, internal family systems is another, um, you know, I'm not as deeply educated. There's internal family systems is a really um, incredible treatment modality as well that helps with trauma. It's another evidence-based practice, you know, been researched. Um, so there's a lot of ways to to go about getting what treatment. is internal um family systems exactly how does that differ from emdr um internal family systems works within the self um well kind of like what we were just talking about it works within mm -hmm. the self to treat ourselves as like as if we were just you know a one big loving dysfunctional family right yeah and if i can access the part of you that um that isn't traumatized, you know, that's, we call it the self or the highest self, right? If I can get, if I, we can have that part of you, um, you know, hold vigil and uh, for all yeah. these other parts of you that are struggling, then you learn to be the coach of that team or the conductor of that orchestra, you know? And so it, okay. it's, um, it's a really helpful way to, to help these parts mature and move through developmental levels while you, you know, the self, is learning to take charge and see them with compassion and love and be able to kind of have some creativity and healing. So aside from that, um, those aren't the only two uh, things that you use to treat your patients, correct? We actually spoke about um, on the phone before we had this interview, Amy and I spoke about how you actually recently have been using a like psychedelic experiences to help treat these uh, PTSD patients. Can you touch on that a little bit? Because is that like a new kind of thing that's been occurring over the past few years or have people always used uh, psychedelics to do different things like that? I'm really excited to be talking about all of this. Uh, and But especially really excited to be adding to the conversation of psychedelics because it's an incredibly... Um, just incredibly useful, powerful uh, field of research that's going on right now. Well, it was being researched in the 50s and 60s, you know, but it all got shut down, of course, because lots of reasons. But um, for the last 20 years now, they've been researching and, you know, being able to have more official research on um, like psilocybin, which is um, uh, the compound in magic mushrooms, you know, what people would think of as magic mushroom. So psilocybin compounds, they're um, researching uh, people's use of high dose psilocybin for things like um, end of life anxiety and having incredible outcomes. And these are really reputable places like Johns Hopkins. Um, mm. And there, there's a lot of research going on with psilocybin now in treatment resistant depression. Um, and and also uh, maps uh, the the multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies maps you can find them on maps.org um, they're conducting a lot of clinical trials as well throughout the um, united states and they need volunteers so we need volunteers to um, you know for these studies and uh, also fascinatingly mdma the thing that you would think of as um, like molly or ecstasy mdma in its purest form is being used to treat people with ptsd with incredible outcomes it's just amazing because when you can make the body and the nervous system feel safe and um and then help you know be able to look at the traumas that happened you're able to come to resolution a lot more quickly than you would in therapy and a lot more effectively a lot of times too because, um, you know, we can only hack into the nervous system just this tiny bit. And psychedelics have an incredible ability to um, help quiet people's, like, default mode network. You know, the, the part of your brain that continually chatters and tells you that you're not good enough or, you know, not lovable or what have you. Um, but the psychedelics have the, you have the opportunity to turn that off for a little while. Which makes it not a magic pill, you know, to to 
get rid of depression or anxiety, but it, it's a tool. And that's the yeah. big thing that people have to understand is like just using these recreationally isn't going to, you know, do, do the, do what you want that to do. If you're kind of going for um, mental health uh, treatment, but, but doing it under the supervision of somebody who's trained and licensed and, or, you know, um, mm-hmm. is going to be an incredible tool to be able to move through these experiences and get, get our system back to like a healthy baseline, you know? Yeah. So like when we first spoke on the phone about it, um, I had mentioned that I read somewhere that, uh, Colorado had legalized it for medical purposes. So um, what you're saying is that like under the supervision of a doctor who or therapist who specializes in that, you're not just taking uh, psilocybin at as a recreational use and doing a certain like however much you feel necessary, but a doctor is actually prescribing you an, an actual amount mm-hmm. to take on like a what is it like a daily weekly basis or is it I don't know how it's uh well, the research use. that they're doing now is actually with high dose um, high dose psilocybin. So they're doing like single single use treatments uh, in a clinical setting uh, with a therapist, um, and that's the that's what they're researching these things on. Um, what they've done in Colorado and Oregon actually is decriminalized psilocybin. So, um, mm-hmm. so uh, decriminalized having them, is that the only have, state that did that? What's that? Is that the only state that decriminalized it so far? Yeah, Oregon and Colorado. Yeah, and. So what that opens up the door for is, you know, uh, well, a lot of things, but it opens up the door for a lot of therapists to be able to, and, you know, guides and um, however they end up structuring uh, certification, it ends up kind of creating a situation where they can decide um, what kind of training and certifications that people will need in order to facilitate these experiences for clients, because we want to have a safe and responsible uh, method for people to go through these experiences. Um, and we just, you know, need some regulatory agencies to be smart about it. And, um, you know, so it's kind of like, you know, kids don't try this at home, but it's like, we need to be able to find pe- people that are uh, well-trained to facilitate these experiences so that they, you know, so we have safety. So I'm kind of thinking, like, are you able to actually do uh, EMDR while the patient is on psychedelics, essentially? Like, it does that tap into a different part of the brain? Like, does the, does the psychedelics help them tap into that part of the brain that you're trying to access during EMDR, or are they just two completely separate things? That's a really good question. Um, What's fascinating about psychedelics is humans are really hardwired to have these experiences. And there's a, there's a couple of books that have come out lately. Um, Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, is, um, has been a huge um, help in recent years on helping people understand and normalizing these experiences. And... Um, there's an inner healing intelligence. That's the phrase that gets used a lot in this um, space is inner healing intelligence. And the brain and the body have this incredible way of, of healing. If we can uh, be a supportive guide for someone and kind of get out of the way. So we don't really need a lot of interventions when it comes to um, psychedelic assisted therapy. uh, When the client is going through the psychedelic experience, you know, if we can help them, relax and let go and accept what's happening. There's a lot of healing that takes place very naturally through the inner healing intelligence. And ketamine is a big one that's actually legal and is used, um, you know, throughout the United States. It's, um, there's a lot of ketamine clinics where I'm at here in Utah. And that's the psychedelic that I end up uh, working with because it is the one that's legal. Um, and people aren't doing it in my office. They're doing uh, their ketamine experiences, and then they're coming into my office, hopefully within 48 hours of when they've had that treatment. And that's when the brain is most um, prepped and clear and ready to be able to process um, some of the traumas that, that maybe came up. Or it's a little bit, um, it feels a bit safer to their nervous system because their nervous system is more calm. It feels safer to address the traumas that they weren't able to address before. And we'll also do something called psychedelic integration therapy where we take 
the content from their psychedelic trip, as it were. And we work on ways that they can integrate that into their daily life. Like what came up that really needs to stay? What do you need to keep from this experience that is going to move you towards health? So that's a, a lot of um, what I've been doing lately too, and getting to work with so many people who are getting ketamine treatment. So you, you prefer the ketamine treatment over the psilocybin and the MDMA? Well, mostly because it's just available and it's legal, you know, I, yeah. I guess if we lived in, you know, Colorado, um, I don't know quite what they're doing exactly now. I know that there's a lot of research going on for sure, but I'm not sure how they uh, regulate what therapists can do or what guides can do as far as facilitating experiences for people with um, psilocybin. And I know MDMA, you know, is not legal yet anywhere, but they're doing a lot of good research on it. So, mm -hmm. they, and maps.org is a place where you can sign up for clinical trials and um, if see if there's any in your area, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So you're able to actually prescribe uh ketamine to your patients? I actually don't prescribe okay. anything as a okay. clinical mental health uh, therapist. I work closely with a lot of prescribers and I have some good relationships with people in the area who prescribe for the ketamine clinics and we have a lot of good conversations about whether or not somebody is a you know a candidate for um, yeah. for psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. And a lot of the ketamine clinics um, in our area don't provide mental health therapy. There are a few that do. Um, and I appreciate that because something that really needs to be known about ketamine therapy is that it is a tool. You know, it's not a magic fix for depression or anxiety. It's really good for suicidal ideation as well. If people are feeling chronically suicidal, ketamine is really like um, just an incredible tool for that. But it is, again, a tool and you have to use it in conjunction with therapy and, you know, behavior changes and lifestyle changes or you just end up back to baseline within five months. That's what the research shows. If you don't use, if you use ketamine, but you don't do any of the other things, you just use it as a tool or you just use it as, you know, the medicine and you get up and kind of go back to business as usual after the initial treatments within five months, you'll be back to baseline uh, where you started that basically. So it's really important to get all the other pieces on board and it can be a, a, a a massive game changer, very powerful for change. So you work most closely with ketamine, obviously, but based off the um, research that you've basically seen from different places like John Hopkins and other places that you mentioned, um, which one of these psychedelics do you think is the most uh, efficient in helping treat these patients with either depression or PTSD, or et cetera? So interestingly enough, they're all getting... Um, research for different types of things um, but it's I mean the psychedelics are are kind of shown to be effective in treating so many things I mean depression um, autism addiction opioid addiction um, eating disorders anorexia things like that so the research that's going on out there is just so incredible uh, that we kind of have to take into account you know, we lost like 60 years of uh, research ability with, you know, these uh, these medicines going on, uh, you know, the government making them, what is it, Schedule 1. So saying, saying, you know, Schedule 1 is to say that there is no medical benefit at all to taking these medications or these, you know, these compounds. But they scooped things in there like, um, you know, like ayahuasca and plant medicine, you know, well, that's, you know, Plant medicine includes that realm of like psilocybin, but even things like LSD, you know, they were researching LSD in the fifties for alcohol addiction and having really amazing outcomes. So it's, it really is incredible when these medicines have been kind of vilified, you know, and, and we've been made to be kind of scared of these types of medicines, but really they help, they just unlock a really powerful potential for the, for the human body to heal itself. And we wouldn't think of that. We wouldn't think of LSD as being something that could be a really helpful mental health treatment where, you know, it gets a bad rap. Yeah. Like you said, the government uh, essentially, well, not essentially, they literally made it illegal uh, in the 50s or 60s, like you said. And I guess like 
exactly what you're saying. It gets a bad rap. So it's pretty amazing to hear that people are actually doing studies now where they're finding that it actually helps people with different things, like you said, with uh, depression, PTSD, anxiety, and whatever. So it's pretty cool to hear that uh, something that had such a negative uh, stigma around it is now actually being helped to treat these patients. And you're saying that the studies are showing like pretty uh, great results, correct? Incredible results. Uh, the New York mm. Times had an article at the very beginning of this month talking about the MAPS study, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, maps.org, by the way. Um, they came out with an article um, on, on their MDMA clinical trials that they're doing for treating people with PTSD, you know, including military veterans. And yeah, the, the outcomes are incredible and people are getting through these, I think they use a series of three treatments over three months. And of course, you know, uh, mental health therapy intervention, you know, trauma treatment, things like that in conjunction with it. And yeah, the outcomes they're getting, they're just reaching these incredible outcomes where a lot of people don't even meet the qualifications for PTSD anymore after they're done. And, um, and they're in phase, they're, they're completed phase three and, you know, going into phase four and which means really that we should be able to see, you know, if all goes well, we should be able to see these medicines being available to people, um, you know, for prescription use for therapeutic use in like 2023. And that would be amazing with probably with psilocybin following a couple of years uh, after that, it'll really pave the way. Really? So you said that these people are using, um, basically, instead of just asking this question as pertaining to um, psychedelics, I'd like to ask you in regards to all the treatments that you have, uh, like you just said, for example, they're treating uh, patients with psychedelics and after the treatment, they're not even meeting the qualifications for PTSD. So one of the questions I actually had was that is PTSD something that's actually curable like will it is do these forms of um basically help to get rid of them do they actually go away or do they just lessen symptoms for ptsd patients so um i wish there was a really easy answer for that but Mm. but i guess the short answer is ptsd is curable in the sense that someone Mm. can receive treatment to a point where they no longer meet that criteria that we talked about for ptsd um one of the you know one of the major points of, you know, the criteria for PTSD is, is it impairing functioning in any area of your life? You know, that's where we would use, that's where we would really kind of solidify it as a, as a diagnosis, because if you're, you know, getting through symptoms and triggers and things like that, but, you know, we can't identify that it's impairing functioning, then we're not, um, uh, we're not able to use it as a diagnosis. But, so I guess in that sense, um, people can, you can receive treatment to a point where you don't meet the criteria on, on paper for PTSD, but people might notice um, triggers or other symptoms pops up, pop up in the months and weeks and years after treatment, and they might decide to address that through therapy or, you know, or maybe through some of the tools that they've already learned in therapy that they can um, work through these things themselves. But I see, you know, a lot of people come in for treatment. Um, and then maybe a year or two later, they'll call me up again and go, Hey, I've noticed some of these new triggers are happening. Can we come in and deal with those? And then, you know, so it's a little bit of a, uh, a step out process with, uh, especially with EMDR and PTSD. Yeah. So some, I guess like the treatment, basically, even if they do have symptoms afterwards, they're able to kind of handle it a little better just from having the treatment and going through it with a, uh, professional therapist 150 percent, and i think in this space we kind of have to like if we're talking about um treatment modalities we also have to throw in things like um ayahuasca and Mm. um is that used um by doctors as well in therapists um i don't know of anybody who's i mean probably but i don't know if anybody who's using ayahuasca i know that some treatment companies are using um ibogaine which is um out of uh, I think originated in African countries. Ibogaine is a really incredible treatment for um, 
for mental health issues, but I know that there's some treatment centers, I think even in Florida, using it for addiction treatment. What is that exactly? Is that associated with ayahuasca? What is, what is it called? Well, ibogaine is its own um, plant medicine. Um, ayahuasca is a plant medicine that originated in South America, and they use it, um, you know, has been using it for eons. And it contains the element DMT, which is an element that we make in our brain. But, you know, when you would um, ingest it in these situations, it's... Um, you know, it's a lot higher dose and they mix it, you know, with other plants so it can, gets metabolized properly in, in the body. Um, and that can have really powerful um, healing uh, for people with mental health issues or early trauma. Um, it's a messy experience, of course, because ayahuasca, ayahuasca is a purgative, uh, which means you, you purge. And um, so... What's, what's good about those kinds of experiences is we understand that they're not addictive. You know, some people think, oh, psychedelics, you know, I'm just going to get addicted and um, mm -hmm. it's going to become its own problem, right? But what's interesting about psychedelics is often you have to kind of screw up your courage in order to be able to, to take one. And so um, it, the, the research has found that psychedelics are not uh, addictive. Uh, MDMA falls into a different category, however, um, because... MDMA isn't necessarily a psychedelic, you know, there's no visuals usually with MDMA. Um, they, that falls into the category of like an empathogen. That's what they call it as opposed to a psychedelic. It's an empathogen because it, it increases empathy. Yeah. So um, that basically wraps up all of the questions I had for you, uh, except for this final one. Uh, it was interesting to hear about all these different types of treatment that you use, including the psychedelics, especially because like you said, it's it's been going on for years, but they made it illegal and now they're kind of researching it again. So it, it was cool to hear about that and EMDR and how you treat these patients. Um, so the final question that I'd like to ask you uh, to address to our listeners is what would you recommend for someone who is um, trying to who thinks that they have PTSD or thinks that they need help. Is there anything that you would recommend in receiving uh, therapy or help? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, I think now is, um, I mean, just the best time ever to, you know, with the information that we have, the studies that are going on, the connectivity that we have, you know, the ease, it's kind of at our fingertips, right? With the internet, mm -hmm. um, being able to find information, hopefully good information um, about mental health therapy methods, you know, just making sure that they're, um, they're going to reliable sources for information. Mm -hmm. But some of the organizations for the treatments that we discussed um, and the research facilities, those are going to be the best places to find good information. If, and, you know, if you think that one of the good things, too, is if you think you might qualify for PTSD, um, uh, there's no harm in going and finding out. You know, we have a lot of good tools that we can use to screen to yeah. see if you meet that qualification. And even if you don't, then you're probably ended up with, um, you know, some type of um, diagnosable depression or anxiety that's bringing you there. And those are all caused by trauma too. You know, if somebody doesn't meet the criteria for PTSD, but they meet the criteria for depression, likely we're going to find its roots in trauma and you can treat those the same exact way. And I do. So um, it's worth getting checked out. Um, if you go to a website called um, emdria.org, E-M-D-R-I-A.org, um, that's the EMDR International Association. And so they have information about what is EMDR, what does an EMDR session look like, um, lots of resources for people who, who just kind of want to familiarize themselves with the territory first before jumping in the deep end. And they also have, um, I think in the top right-hand corner of the website, they have a find a therapist um, tool where you can put in your location and your insurance and things like that and um, and how far out you want to drive you know to get there and um, uh, and that'll ensure too that the person that you're working with is trained in EMDR therapy because you really want a well-trained therapist you don't want somebody who's just read it out of a book it's um, uh, it's important that you find somebody who is proficient you know in what they do 
and and then we don't try to just use eye movements you know ourselves at home um you know after you've had some some therapy and some training in that you know that's not a bad tool to use but at mm -hmm. first it really needs to be done under the supervision of a of a really well-trained emdr you know mental health therapist or social worker or yeah all the other yeah well I appreciate you coming today and I appreciate all the advice and uh, basically going through all of the different types of things you do to help these PTSD patients. Uh, I really enjoyed this interview. I learned a lot and heard about a lot of different things that I didn't think would um, even be possible, like you said, with the psychedelics. So um, again, Amy, thank you very much for coming here. Uh, this was a great interview and I hope you had fun. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate being able to talk about these things. I feel like a little pollinator for these types of ideas. So I like to be able to send them out to the masses. So yeah, hopefully yeah. our listeners uh, listen and use the advice that you gave in seeking therapy and using these type of treatments to help their trauma and their PTSD. And sure. And keep the conversation going and kind of be yeah. curious about them about it themselves. too. So yeah, I enjoyed it. Thanks. Thank you for listening to The Schnapp. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And also, please don't forget to follow us on Instagram and YouTube at The Schnapp. That's the S-H-N-A-P. This is your host, Jesse Condon, signing off.